Hey there, Shankar here. I'm guessing you've gotten the memo. It's that delightful time of year when we're encouraged to express our love for friends and family by buying them stuff. We love Black Friday! Yes, the first of the Black Friday shoppers are pitching tents. Jonas alluded Despite several people falling to the ground, shoppers charged ahead, fixated on doorbuster deals. Look at that line. More than 100 million people expected to turn up between now and Sunday. Either If you find shopping as exhausting as I do, but the psychology of shopping as fascinating as I do, today's episode is for you. It's a conversation from April that looks at how we use money to express and sometimes ignore our values. Here's the show. Hope you enjoy it. Support for Hidden Brain comes from Intuit TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Support for Hidden Brain comes from Discover. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for Hidden Brain comes from Robert Half. Robert Half research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. That's why you need Robert Half. Robert Half's specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, they know talent. Visit roberthalf.com. This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. Americans have long expressed their political views with their wallets. In recent months, this has ramped up with boycotts and with boycotts. That's where people express support by buying a company's products. For months now, Nordstrom has been on a list of Trump-affiliated companies to boycott. This is just, it's a wonderful line. I own some of it. I fully, I'm going to just give it, I'm going to give a free commercial here. Go buy it today, everybody. I deleted Uber recently due to what happened at JFK Airport when it appeared that Uber was essentially trying to break the strikes. Fueled the outrage and led to some people to call for a boycott of the airline. It seems like people are a little fed up and, and disillusioned with sort of conventional political channels where they they would normally sort of express their political views. And so in the absence of that legitimacy, there's been sort of a rise in political consumerism. Neeru Paharia is a marketing professor at Georgetown University. She studies how consumer behavior often serves psychological needs rather than economic needs. When we think about the way we spend money, we may think about the comfort of a nice pair of shoes or the pleasure of a great meal. But money also serves a deeper purpose. We use money to express our feelings, to project our status, to defend our values. The products we buy tell stories, stories that we tell others, stories that we tell ourselves. For a small coffee shop, people don't really think much of 
the political situation. But as soon as you put a large competitor in next door, say you put a Starbucks in next door, all of a sudden it becomes this fight between the little guy and the big guy. How money can talk. This week on Hidden Brain. Neeru Paharia says she first became interested in the psychological power of consumer products because of the diamond industry. The diamond engagement ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? A diamond. I studied economics as an undergraduate, and one thing they tell you as an economics major is that people are rational. But as far as Neeru could tell, there was nothing particularly rational about buying a diamond. Now, you can argue that diamonds are beautiful, but there are cheaper stones that are just as pretty. So then the question is, why are people spending so much money on these shiny rocks that have no intrinsic value? You know, there's effectively a perfect substitute. And then it seemed like it was all this kind of psychological stuff that people wanted to express their status. People wanted to kind of fit in with sort of the normative practices in terms of marriage. And it's just sort of dawned on me that products have all this psychological value and that's worth real money. I mean, a whole industry is based on just sort of pure kind of signaling and psychological value. And I found that to be really interesting and sort of at odds with this notion that people are rational. This idea made Nero think about the other ways we use money as a signaling device to express our beliefs and our values. We enact our political will usually by voting or supporting different kinds of legislations and things like that. So it's kind of interesting when people start taking that civic actions, these kind of civic actions into the market, and then start boycotting or boycotting a certain brand or a certain company in order to express their view. And you can kind of think about it in terms of what ends up being more tangible. So if we think about voting, it's sort of an abstract process. It's not very public. Whereas when you buy a product or avoid buying a product, it's very tangible. If you're someone who doesn't buy flashy jewelry, you may say, okay, I'm not one of those people who uses money to talk. Maybe. Or maybe you just don't use diamonds to talk. You use coffee. I've studied the situations between small coffee shops and large coffee shops. And so I I have a paper where we show that for a small coffee shop, if it's just sitting there by itself, people, you know, people don't really think much of the political situation. They just think more about the coffee, sort of about the more rational economic um, features and attributes of the product. But as soon as you put a large competitor in next door, say you put a Starbucks in next door, all of a sudden it becomes this fight between the little guy and the big guy. And then buying your cup of coffee is really meaningful. All of a sudden, it's a symbol of what you believe in. It's a symbol of you supporting the little guy, of you supporting the underdog and trying to stick it to the man. And it's so tangible. And I just find it so fascinating that that's sort of how we kind of we kind of express our political political views on a daily basis and we feel, you know, powerful in a sense that we actually sort of have a say in the situation. Companies, of course, pay attention to what consumers want. They understand that people don't just want to buy a cup of coffee or a computer. They want the right story to go with that cup of coffee or computer. This is why so many Silicon Valley companies that are worth billions of dollars spend so much time telling us about their origin stories, how two kids dropped out of college to explore a dream in someone's garage. 
So this is what we call, we have another paper around underdog brand biographies and the sort of idea of kind of starting in a garage from humble beginnings, but overcoming obstacles to kind of fulfill your dream. That's a really compelling narrative, especially to Americans. I think because of the whole kind of pull yourself up from your bootstraps and this whole notion of the American dream. And so companies that take advantage of that narrative and if they use it effectively, even as they grow, can kind of remind consumers that, you know, this was a small company and they, they might, you know, identify with it more and thus, you know, like penalize them less for being a large company. There tends to be sort of a kind of an aversion or a disdain for large companies. People tend to kind of identify a lot more with smaller companies. And you tell the story of uh, Nantucket Nectars, which also has the same sort of startup story. A lot of companies, they talk about how um, Nantucket Nectars in particular talks about how they started with a blender and a dream. And um, Cliff Bar talks about how, you know, they started in their garage with with he was living with his dog and his skis and, you know, was cooking. <laughs> and, is you know, it's a sort of underdog narrative that um, makes use of this sort of external disadvantage, but really, you know, trying hard. And I think people really, really find that story resonating because I think we all on some level feel like underdogs. And so it sort of is can be motivating to us. Companies are also extremely skilled uh, at selling us things that are tied to a certain sense of identity. I, I remember this uh, set of ads that Apple was running some years ago where they basically suggested that people who bought Macs were hipper and cooler than people who bought PCs. Hello, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. I'm afraid to ask. Well, I was sitting on my desk. Yeah. Someone walked by, carelessly tripped over my power cord, yanked me straight down to the ground. Bam! Yikes. MacBooks come with this power cord that connects magnetically, so when it gets pulled, it just pops right off. Everything's just kind of thought out, you know, like the tiny built-in eyesight camera. My life is flashing before my eyes. I okay. see a sunset in a field of beautiful wheat. Isn't that your screensaver? Yeah. They were basically saying, if you buy this kind of computer, it sends a signal of the kind of person you are. It's, it's not so much about your status, but how, how cool you are. Yeah, and I think being cool is also a form of status. You know, you want to, you wanna, and this, there's actually recent research on this by Warren and Campbell. And they talk about how um, coolness is essentially another way of kind of signaling your status, which can be very compelling to certain groups of consumers who want to signal their autonomy, that they're not um, just drones and, and just kind of following the masses, but they that they're autonomous, that they have kind of control and, and are kind of independently minded. There is some irony here in uh, an advertising campaign by a major company trying to convince people that if you buy products made by that company, you're actually acting independently and autonomously <laughs> when, in fact, the advertising is actually making you do what the company wants you to do. Yeah, it is uh, It is interesting. I mean, um, I remember in high school that um, there was a whole group of, of kids who would wear Metallica shirts and they were trying to show how different they were, but yet they were all wearing Metallica shirts, and so they were sort of kind of, it sort of defeated the purpose on on some level, but but it wasn't uh, it wasn't immediately apparent to them. One thing that Nero has found is that consumers are attracted not just to high end brands, but to powerful brands. Walmart can be a status symbol. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So there's this relationship between status and power. And so status is a way, is sort of what we get when we have power. And so when we think about power, uh, we can think about Walmart as being a really powerful brand. It has a lot of strength in the marketplace. And so that strength, that kind of access to power, having a lot of resources as a brand in itself, even though it's kind of a low-end brand, if you compare it to other low-end brands, that can be kind of attractive to people who care about status. When we come back, I'm going to speak to Nero about how we use money not just to express our values, but to ignore them. Stay with us. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with features and benefits like flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business, 24-7 support from a business card specialist trained to help with your business needs, and so much more. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. Many of us understand the economic choices we make can have real ethical consequences. The products we buy can adversely affect the environment or take advantage of poor people in distant countries. We can buy stuff from stores that treat their employees well, or we can buy things, sometimes at a cheaper price, from stores that treat their employees poorly. Often, after a big news story about conditions in sweatshops or the use of child labor, there's public outrage. But as Neeru Paharia has explored, our actions don't always match our rhetoric. She once wrote a paper on the subject titled, Sweatshop Labor is Wrong, unless the shoes are cute. And the idea there is that you kind of decide how much you like something. And so you, you really like a pair of shoes. And so then kind of the, the moral reasoning starts from there. It doesn't start from kind of a neutral place where you're like, where you say, oh, sweatshop labor is wrong. You know, under any circumstances, I don't want to subject people to these unfortunate working conditions, it actually starts at a place where you're like, well, the product's really nice (laughs) and the the shoes look really good on me. And then you start reasoning about it. And that's called motivated reasoning. So rather than think about morality in terms of this kind of objective thing, uh, we kind of think about it more like a lawyer. So we decide what we want and then we kind of come up with the reasons to support it. So we may say, oh, if we see a pair of shoes that we don't like, we may say, oh, sweatshop labor is wrong. I don't like sweatshop labor. I don't approve. But if the shoes are cute, you might say something like, oh, it's okay because people need jobs or companies need to make money. 
Um, so you'll you'll be more likely to agree with these things because you're motivated. In a sense, the shoes are really cute. You really want them. And so you want to find a way to kind of reconcile your your kind of distaste for this situation and, and the kind of the reality of it. And you've actually conducted experiments which show that people are more likely to reach for these kinds of rationalizations when they actually like a product. Yes, exactly. So if they like a product, if you show them sort of an attractive pair of shoes, they'll be more likely to agree with these economic justifications. If you show them an unattractive pair of shoes, all of a sudden they become these kind of moral animals who say, oh, no, it's wrong. And so um, so the idea is that we just we just decide what is moral based on, you know, how much we want something. What, one thing you've looked at is that we're often willing to go along with products that are ethically problematic so long as we can come up with a way to distance ourselves from the unethical behavior that produced it. The more distance we can put between ourselves and the unethical behavior or the unethical action, the easier it becomes to perform. So this goes to the idea that if if I if I went to the grocery store and asked for a chicken and they went out and killed a chicken for me, I would feel worse about that than if I was just picking up the chicken from, you know, from 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 a tray. And of course, in both cases a chicken had to be killed, but in one case I feel like I have actually asked for the chicken to be killed. In the other case, the dirty work has already been done. Yeah. So there's a number of things that sort of enable us to not feel so close to the harm. I mean, essentially, you're you're buying a product from a company, but what you're doing is you're hiring them to do kind of this dirty work for you. So say any, any clothing company, they're the ones who hire, you know, a child and maybe you know, under some unfortunate conditions, you're not directly actually hiring that person. But I think the second thing that happens is this idea of the order of how kind of supply and demand happens. So we live in an economy where most items are produced first. And so they're already produced, they're already in the store. And so when you go the, go to the store, the damage has been done, so to speak. So it's already been done, it's already happened, but imagine that you went into that same store and you had to um, order your chicken or your clothes uh, on demand. So if you order it on demand, you know, they then, they will put a child, you know, have them work under these unfortunate conditions. And then you start feeling responsible and guilty for this situation where when it's already happened, you you feel like, oh, well, it's already happened and I'm not responsible for it. And I think people don't really kind of see this broader role that consumers have in creating demand for these kinds of products. They don't see that A causes B because it sort of happens backwards, that they actually make the product first and then you decide if you want it. But if we lived in an economy that was all on demand, then it would it would happen the other way. You would decide you want it and then they would make it. And then there would be a stronger connection, kind of a stronger cause and effect connection that I think people would then feel a bit more responsible and a bit more guilty for these kinds of situations. I can imagine that people would feel horrible if they if they said I want I want a shirt and they have to send some poor 9-year-old kid into the basement to to make the shirt for the next 6 hours. I mean, people would feel awful about that. Yeah, and I think people wouldn't do it. And so then it kind of gets to this question of does the economic structure and the structure of how goods are made does the kind of logistical structure impact how we think about ethics and how we think about our own role in enabling these kinds of harms? The companies who make stuff for us are run by people, and those people have minds that work like our minds. 
So it should come as no surprise that just as consumers would rather have companies do the dirty work for them to distance themselves from the ethical consequences of their economic actions, companies often choose to do exactly the same thing. Rather than run a factory that makes clothing under awful working conditions, why not outsource the dirty work to someone else? If a reporter unearths details of poor working conditions, you can now plausibly say, but I didn't know about it. In many cases, companies actually do outsource the harm. So rather than own the factory that makes the clothing under you know, these terrible conditions, we outsource them to other firms that are owned by other entities. So a lot of these companies do try and claim that they had no knowledge of this, this did not happen within the boundaries of my firm. It turns out that both individuals and companies often prefer to be kept in the dark about unethical practices that are further up the supply chain. So there was a really, really interesting paper by Julie Irwin and some other colleagues who wrote a paper on this idea of willful ignorance. And the idea was that you had a product and you had access to a whole bunch of different pieces of information. And one of them was the labor conditions or the environmental conditions. And the question was, do people actually ask for this information? You can look at it if you want, but you could decide not to look at it. And it turns out people didn't want to look at that information because they didn't really want to be confronted with this kind of conflict between their beliefs and and, you know, what they really wanted. And they found this effect was stronger for people who cared more about labor issues, who cared more about environmental issues. They were more likely to avoid, you know, avoid this information in order to kind of avoid this conflict. Think of the deep irony of what Nero just said. The folks who care the most about ethics might be most willing to turn a blind eye to unethical business practices because they know if they found out about those practices they would feel obliged to do something about it. We've talked about the many ways in which consumers and companies play games with one another, using products to speak on their behalf or using products behind which they can hide. But there's one dimension of economic activity we haven't explored, and that's time. I asked Nero how some of us use our calendars to broadcast our social status. It used to be that people once broadcast their social status by being idle, but that idea has been turned on its head in the United States. It turns out nowadays that people who are busy are actually seen to have more social status. So rather than somebody who is very wealthy, who could waste their time, take fancy vacations, you know, invest in, in learning these kind of archaic mannerisms, um, it turns out the person who works really hard, who's really busy, who's very effortful, is the one who seemed to have more social status. And I think in part, that is because we live in a society that values social mobility. So we actually conducted the study in the U.S. and we conducted the same study in Italy. And we found that for Italian people, they thought the person who was living a life of leisure had more status. Of course, they have so much money, they can just relax all the time. Whereas in the U.S., they thought the person who was working all the time actually had more status. And I think what was going on was that in the U.S., people sort of value this sense of earned status. So status can be earned in the U.S., where I think in Italy, it's more of a society where status is inherited. So, for example, my co-author is Italian, and she's always talking about how people come from good families or not. And so there's very much this idea that your status isn't necessarily something that you earn, but you inherit. And so in that sense, 
working hard really wouldn't get you anywhere. Whereas in America, you have the sense that you can actually climb the ladder. And so celebrities, for example, might, might, might say, instead of saying, you know, I make one movie every year and I get to hang out on the beach for the, for the other 10 months of the year, they actually are suggesting, oh, my God, I'm so overworked. Yeah, so we actually looked at tweets of celebrities who um, who were tagged with this um, hashtag humblebrag, this idea of bragging, but um, sort of disguising it as a complaint. And a lot of the ones, a lot of the tweets we found had to do with being busy. So, you know, I have to be in the recording studio this morning, and then I have a book meeting in the afternoon, and then they have to travel to New York in the evening, and hashtag I have no life, you know, these kinds of tweets you're trying to say something about yourself. You're busy. You're really important. You don't have time to do other things. And so you see that on social media. That's kind of an acceptable and effective way to show your status by telling people how busy you are. Nira, I want to ask about your own life, which is I understand that growing up, you came from a family that in some ways uh, prized not demonstrating its commitment to status, that actually prized not buying the expensive things as a way to show off. <laughs> my, um, so I, I'm uh, of uh, East Indian origin, and, um, and my parents immigrated to this country. And it turns out in East Indian communities, showing your social status is a very very important thing. So people are really, really motivated um, to show their status. And when I was growing up, that was happening through buying, you know, really expensive cars. So a lot of my parents' friends, they had Jaguars and they had Mercedes. And I remember I went to a friend's house one time and they had a Jaguar. She was also Indian. And I asked her, um, she was complaining about her mom kind of being frugal about different things. And I said, oh, that's so strange because, you know, she's frugal and yet you have a Jaguar. And she said, oh, well, that's just to show off. And I just, the, the candidness of that moment really, really, you know, sparked something in my mind. Like, wow, people are just trying to show off. And my um, my mom also would often complain about how all her friends would buy these expensive cars. And the only reason they were doing it was to show off. And so I just I kind of got really fascinated with this idea of showing your social status. And I think kind of uh, an evidence of how we're things are shifting now towards maybe towards something like busyness. Now all her friends are retired and they all brag about how busy they are. And now my mom complains about how everyone talks about how busy they are <laughs> all the time. So I think, you know, it's sort of an evolving, uh, kind of an evolving mechanism. <laughs> Neeru Paharia is a marketing professor at Georgetown University. Neeru, thank you for joining me today on Hidden Brain. Thanks for having me. This week's show was produced by Maggie Penman. Our team includes Tara Boyle, Jenny Schmidt, Rena Cohen, Renee Klar, and Parth Shah. Our unsung hero this week is Steve Inskeep. Steve's the host of Morning Edition, and he played a vital role in developing Hidden Brain on the radio. He loves learning new things and approaches every story with an enthusiasm that's infectious. Shankar, I'm so honored that you were willing to take a little bit of your very precious time. I barely have time to say thanks, Steve. For more Hidden Brain, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and look for our new radio show, now airing on many public radio stations across the country. I'm Shankar Vedantam. This is NPR. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older 
like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Support for Hidden Brain comes from BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Maybe you'd see a movie by yourself, take a nap, read a book, or talk with a friend. Or maybe you'd enjoy doing nothing for once. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hidden today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hidden.